Okay, Bogotov. Um, today's stop is Daf Lamid, thirty, and we begin in earnest the uh, the uh, third parak. We began it uh, just briefly yesterday. We're act- I will actually, for the sake because it's a short stop and for the sake of full context, start us again from um, although we had finished the doc yesterday, but start us from the Gemara towards the bottom of Chavtet uh, Amidet, right after the Mishnah. And this is going to hone in on the first two statements of the Mishnah, the first statement of the two invalidities. A stolen and a dried lulav is invalid. And I've already pointed out a very important principle that the Gemara will sort of state in almost in passing, which is that a lot of the invalidities of the lulav and the esrog and the other minim um, that have to do with their aesthetics and appearance um, is attributed to the use of the word hadar in the verse, creates hadar, the fruit of a beautiful tree, but that hadar is used to understand that that has to be a character of all of the uh, meaning of the lulav, all of the uh, components of the lulav. Rashi on the Mishnah interprets it in a larger context of zekeli van vehu, beautifying mitzvot. Um, even though normally that is not something that is an absolute requirement and doesn't invalidate a mitzvah, here he understands presumably that the word hadar is coming to say that here that aspect of having a beautiful mitzvah um, is um, is uh, central and without it is invalid. But anyway, it is rooted in the use of the word of the verse of hadar. Let's take a look at the Gemara. Kapasik Vitani says Gemara, the Mishnah, Kapasik uh, Vitani means like just, you know, sort of states, you know, categorically, un without distinction um, and states and, and states that a stolen or a dried up uh, lulav is invalid making no distinction regardless of whether you're talking about the first day yantiv or the second day now the second day yantiv it's clear from context and what all the Rishonim say does not mean our second day yantiv of Golos it means Cholomoe Okay, so whether it's the biblical mitzvah on the first day or the rabbinic mitzvah on Cholomoe, because the verse says, take on the first day. And then the end of the verse is, and the end of the verse is, rejoice before God seven days. So the rabbis understand that seven days is before God. If you're in the temple, the Beis HaMikdash, you take the Lulav all seven days. Because outside of the temple, or some say outside, it's the Yerushalayim, outside Yerushalayim, but we'll say outside of the temple, you only take the Lulav by Yom HaRishon. The only reason we take the Lulav in the Yetzirah the other days, the days of Cholomoed, is because of um, a Zechel HaMikdash, to commemorate the Beis HaMikdash. So those are rabbinic. So the Gemara is saying the fact that the mission just says invalid without distinction sounds like regardless on the first days or the first day or the later days it's always invalid whether the biblical mitzvah or the rabbinic mitzvah I understand if it's dried up why it's invalid throughout there's that key word you need hadar you need it to be beautiful and if it doesn't have a, if it falls below a minimum aesthetic quality it's invalid and that logically applies for the whole week Ella guzzle but stolen. I get it the first day. Yet you can't have it stolen. It has to be yours. Because it says yours. Why not the second days? Why should you have to be why should it pass along to you? Now, before we get to the answer, again, it's a very just an important point to, to, to stop here and say is why does the Gemara assume that you don't also need Lachem all seven days? Why does it take it for granted that Hadar applies all seven days on Cholomoid? Maybe Lachem should as well. Now, one answer could just be that it's not based on anything in the verse. It's just based on the fact that, we, you know, sort of like on an accepted halacha. And we know as an accepted halacha that you can use a borrowed lulav and esrog on Cholomoid. So it's just saying, like, you know, I'm not saying, you know, why logically Lachem should be different than Hadar, but we just happen to know that you can use borrowed Lulav and Esrogan the other day, so why should stolen be a problem? That's maybe like the easiest way. Just we start from a point of fact that we know you can use borrowed on the other day. But the Gemara doesn't say that, and Rishonim sort of pushes Rishonim to ask, what determines which invalidities are only on the first day and which ones are on the rest of the day? And why should there be a difference between the aesthetic aspect and the ownership aspect? So, so the Tosos and Rashi basically say that, look, the rest of the days are rabbinic. 
So we're not going to demand everything at the rabbinic level than we demand at the biblical. Even though often we pattern rabbinic after biblical. But things that are really like, you know, sort of central or they touch on deeper themes and here's where Rashi brings up his idea of Hadar is Zekeli Van Zeyu is beautifying the mitzvah. So it touches on a deeper theme. That's the type of a thing that rabbinically we're going to insist on even on the other days. Like that's an important idea, having a beautiful mitzvah. Something that's more like a technical issue, like owning it, however you own it or it's borrowed, that's not so central. And we're not going to demand that on the other day. So there's like more of a logic to demand that it be beautiful or to demand aesthetic than to demand a question of, um, than to demand the issue of ownership. Another way of saying that is also that Hadar and the beauty and the quality sort of describe something about the very nature of the object that you're taking. It's like a different mitzvah if you're taking a different type of an esrog. An esrog that could be all shriveled up, right? It's different physically what you're doing. Whether you own it or not is something that is not visible and is not somehow part of the physical reality of what you are doing. So again, another way of explaining that the issue of ownership is more tangential and therefore it's assumed to be not going to be required um, on Cholamoe. So that's like the basic approach that Rashi says. There's a lot of other discussion about this. First of all, some try to link it to the very phrasing of the verse. Ukachem lachem bayom harishon creates hadar. The word lachem precedes yom harishon. So lachem is only limited to the first day. Hadar comes after the word yom harishon and is for all days. Which is very nice, except we're talking here about the rabbinic mitzvah, so how it would be linked on the framing of the verse is not so clear. The last thing I'll say about it at this point is that there's a major, major debate of the Rishonim about whether the invalidities apply on Cholomoe, because there was a reality that in Europe or whatever, like in the time of the Rishonim, it was very hard to get a kosher lulav and esrog. And um, maybe you could have one kosher lulav and esrog in the whole town. So how do you deal with it? So, um, so um, some Rishonim basically say, you're right. You know, all of these problems remain problems on Cholomoe, and um, maybe you're not Yotze, or maybe they come up with an idea of saying, like, maybe it's like you're doing it sort of like as a Zecher. You know, you'll, you'll take it and you'll make a bracha to remember the mitzvah, but technically you're not Yotze. That's like a lot of what was said in Ashkenaz. In Svarad, what was said is actually, even when things are not satisfy Hadar, even when things are not aesthetic, and they are dried up and shriveled, because they would have cases where they would keep a lulav and esrog from like previous years. And the only lulav and esrog they would use is the one they've been using for the last ten years. It was going to be Yavish. Okay? So a number of Rishonim said, okay, you know what, you're not Yotze, but you can still take it and make a bracha like as a Zecher. Okay? That's what they said in Ashkenaz. In Sfarad, a lot what they said was, no, actually, you are Yotze with that, at least on Cholomoe. And that e, your Yotze with the invalid, invalid stuff on Cholomoe. So what do you do with Argamara? Argamara says, Yavish is a problem on the other days. So the Ramban has a brilliant answer. Okay, I don't know if it's Pshat, but he has a brilliant answer. He says that actually when we talk about here the other days of Yantiv, and we talk about Cholomoe, we're not talking about the rabbinic mitzvah. We're talking about the biblical mitzvah in the base of Mikdash. And that's where we can say, okay, in the Beis HaMikdash, you don't need Lachem on the other days, but you need it to be Hadar. And maybe exactly, because the verse has the word Lachem coming before by Yom HaRishon, and Hadar becomes the word after Yom HaRishon. That's in terms of the biblical mitzvah. We're talking about doing it in the Beis HaMikdash. Like, that would be so funny to just assume, like, shot. that's the context. But when we're talking only about the rabbinic mitzvah nowadays, then even if it's dried up, you're still Yotze. Okay, so it's... Two imp- so, quite fascinating. So, again, two important things to understand from this line of the Gemara before we proceed. Number one <coughs> is that why is Hadar required on Cholomoe, the aesthetic aspects, and not ownership? Probably the simplest explanation is that Hadar that is a much more deeper idea of a beautiful mitzvah. It's also much more central, like about the character of the act. Whereas the issue of ownership is a much more secondary type of an external requirement, a non-physical requirement, and therefore it's something that we're assuming does not apply on the other days, and we know you are, can use a borrowed Lubanesov on the other days. And that's the line of distinction between issues about the aesthetics, which remain an issue, and ownership. But to also remember that the Rishone Sfarad basically said, against the simple sense of this Gemara, they actually said that you can have a dried up Lubav on the other days, and that actually was a reality. And they actually, 
and the Ramban deals with it by saying that either we rule against this Gemara or we say that this Gemara is talking about the biblical mitzvah in the Beit HaMikdash. Okay, but we'll deal with the simple understanding that in Cholomoed it has to have the aesthetic requirements but it doesn't have to have the ownership issues and now we get back to the Gemara's question which is, so what, who cares if it's stolen or not? Quick question. I'm yeah. surprised that this situation will come up in safari lands because palm trees and citrus fruit grow very easily in the Mediterranean in the Middle East. Well, but some safari lands were Spain, so Spain but Spain is on the Mediterranean. Mediterranean. Good I question. Would, I don't know. I would like to suggest methodologically that we define by definition all of the statements of Okay. <laughs> You've now used up your one question for right now. So now the question is like this. So back to a question. So back to back to back, so back to the question. Okay. So you don't have to own it, but it, we understand that it has to be aesthetic. It has to be hadar. So we understand the base of the problem. But why is stolen a problem on the other days when you can use borrowed? So Zamara says. Milo, I'm Rabbi Yochanan, Mishum Mishum Ben Yochai. So says Rabbi Yochanan in the name of Rabbi Mishum Ben Yochai. Mishum Dahave, top line of Lamed Amdalev, Mitzvah Habaabi Avera, because it's a mitzvah coming through the agency of sin. You're only able to have this lulav because you stole it, and that is invalid. Now, where do you know that the idea of a mitzvah coming through sin is invalid? Shenemar Tehevesim Gazul Esabiseach Esacholah. And you shall, if you, and if you bring the stolen and the lame, not, not Pesach, Piseach, the lame, and the sick animal, the end of the verse is, Hashem, I think is the end of the verse, will this be desired by God if you bring this type of an animal as a sacrifice? So it includes the issue of lame, and the, uh, the, the, the problem of lame and the problem of stolen. Gazul, Dubyazipiseach, stolen is made, is here compared to a lame. The same way a lame animal has, is invalid and has no way that it can ever be fixed, right? It's going to remain invalid. So even a stolen animal or object here, we would say by a lula, but for now we'll say an animal, has, cannot be fixed. It doesn't matter whether it is before the owner has given up hope, Yeish is when the owner gives up hope, or even after the owner has given up hope, it remains invalid. Okay? I understand why you can't use a stolen animal for a korban before the owner has given up hope. Adam Look at that, quoting the Pesach right from the beginning of this week's Parsha. If a person brings from amongst you a korban, so it has to be mikem, the korban has to come from you, from the person who's bringing it. Veladidehu. So you're not, it's not your animal. So if you try to sanctify your animal and the, and that you had stolen, you're giving a korban from something that isn't yours. But after the owners, if you stole it from, if, if Reuben stole it from Shimon, and Shimon then says, oh, I'm never going to get that sheep back, and then Reuben brought it as a korban, sanctified it and brought it as a korban, Hakanya Biyayush. So, so Reuben should now own it, because the principle is that after the original owner gives up hope, if somebody takes it, it becomes theirs. Like if I lose a lost object on the street and my wallet and you pick it up before I've given up hope of returning it, you have to return it to me. But if I say, oh my God, I lost my wallet, I'm never going to get it back, there are no honest people in this world, and then you find it, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then you get to keep it because you picked it up after I gave up hope, after years. So the Gemara here is assuming the same is true if somebody stole a sheep and the original owner was the Yaesh, gave up hope, that now this sheep becomes a belong to the Ganav or the Goslin, and now it is. So why can't he give it as a Korban? Now I should say, I mean some of these huge toasts in here, which make it a very short stop today, get to this question of do we really say that Yaesh allows the Goslin to take possession of it? In the case of the Aveda, if I find the lost wallet, um, after the, after the owner's given up hope, fine, I can take it. Because when I first encounter it, it's sort of like the owner has already detached himself from it, given up hope. But let's say I find the wallet, and then the owner gives up hope, once the wallet's in my hand. What do you think the halacha is? Can I keep it then? I pick up the wallet, the owner hasn't given up hope. And you have an obligation. And then I have an obligation to return it. And then even if he, after he gives up hope, right, once I encountered it and I picked it up with an obligation to return it, his giving up hope doesn't change things. So the same is generally true about a goslin. I steal something, and then the owner gives up hope. I still don't own it. I still have to return it. I, still, I was the one who stole Maybe if somebody takes it from me, they're like, you know, from, from their perspective, they're encountering it after Yeish. So if they, if I sell it to someone now, they might own it. 
because they're now getting it back there. But when I took it, I have an obligation to return it immediately. His giving up hope doesn't change things, doesn't let me own it. So why does the Gemara assume that after Yeyush, the Goslin now owns it? So there are two explanations. One is that there actually is another opinion out there in the Gemara. There actually is an opinion that Yeyush Kidi, Yeyush all by itself, Kani, transfers ownership. And it doesn't mean that I have to, first there has to be Yeyush, and then I have to take possession of it. Even if I already stole it, and then the owner gives up hope, once he's given up hope now, and once, maybe it's it's different than if you have picked it up to return it. You picked it up to return it, you brought it back into the owner's sphere. He might not be aware of it, but you're picking it up to return it, puts it back in his sphere. But if I took it to steal it and I'm pulling it away from him, then as soon as he gives up hope, even after I took possession of it, he, uh, and I'm going to own it. And that's the simple sense of this Gemara. That this Gemara assumes that Yeush by itself works for a Ghanav and a Goslin. There's another possibility I'll just mention because it'll also come up on the Amuzvet in a different way, is that Yeush doesn't do it by itself. But if I stole his sheep and then I sanctified it after Yeush, so the act of sanctifying it sort of paint, it's like handing it over to Hektesh. If I handed it over to Charlie, he would get it and he would own it. So my act of sanctifying it changes it and makes it something that allows me to own it. It's not just the Yeyush by itself. It's the change of identity and ownership that comes with the sanctification. But that's getting a little complicated. We're going to assume the simple sense of the Gemara. The Gemara says, I stole it. The Gemara assumes that once the owners give up hope, and I'm stealing it, now I fully own it. So if I fully own this sheep after I've stolen it, why can't I bring it as a korban? So let's take a look. So, why not? So, before the owner gave up, it has to be yours. It's not his. But after the owner has given up, yeah, now I own it. So, why can't I bring it to the Korban? must be. It's a mitzvah that comes to sin. Since it's stolen, that completely stigmatizes it, invalidates it, just like if it were lame and you can't use it. And same by the lula. Forget that there's no requirement. You can use a borrowed lula on the other days. But stolen invalidates. Now, I'm going to discuss what the, exactly how to frame the parameters of Mitzvah Babavir in a minute. Let me just read what the next passage. Okay. Rebbe Yochanan also says in the name of Rebbe Yochai, my Dechsiv, what's meant by the verse, Ki Ani Hashem, Ohev Mishpat, I, God, love justice. I hate gezel, stolen objects in an ola, in a stole, in a burnt offering. Again, it's particularly rooted in the world of korban. So, what does that mean? What's the point to say God hates it? It's a it's a it's a parable to a, ki, a, a human king, a king of flesh and blood. So we say flesh and bones. Shaya over um uh, He was passing by the um, tax house. You know, where you have to pay basically the, um, 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 what is it, like when you're importing things. You know, the Gemara often talks about Mosin, custom, the custom house. So there he is. He's coming back from a, you know, from a journey overseas, a diplomatic journey, and he lands in uh, JFK, and he's declaring all of his objects, and he's paying customs on it. Okay? He doesn't, he doesn't take it in through the diplomatic pouch. So, they said to him, What do you mean? All this money, the tax money from the customs is all going to you. Why are you paying taxes on your own objects? So, so he said to them, um, From me will learn all those who pass on the way, who fly into LaGuardia. And they won't find ways to get away from paying customs. I want to set the right example. Now, by the way, I should say parenthetically, this is fascinating because there are Mishnayot in the Durham that talk about making a false type of a neder, or it's not, you know, uh, to a to a customs collector in order to get out of paying the customs and actually give ways in which technically that might be okay. And that leads to a whole, like, discussion about, you know, whether, you know, about following governmental laws and whether the tax collector, are they, what they're doing is just or not just? Is it an unjust government? Are they sort of, you know, exploiting their position and taking more than they say deserves to be taking and so on? So it's in, with that background to appreciate that there's a mission that actually talks about ways of avoiding 
supporting tax collectors. And here the Gemara is saying, no, God is setting an example that, you know, people that go on the ways should not fi- try to find ways to avoid the tax collectors. There's a very, like, practically relevant reality that it is speaking to. You know, this was in a world of, you know, within Roman Palestine where Rome would be, you know, it would be levy- levying these taxes. And are we supposed to give it to the, this uh, sort of oppressive government or not give it and so on? Um, so it's important, I think, to A, appreciate a little bit of the historical and relevant context of that type of a statement. How it's relevant for us is God wants to set the example. Now, it's not, um, you know, it's not like the greatest parallel, maybe it's like a Kava Homer. In this case, it's sort of like, you know, um, but, but the argument, you know, it's like, it's not like paying a taxes and doing your duty. It's more like, if you stole, what's the consequence of then, you know, fulfilling the mitzvah with that? But it seems that the parallel is the following, is that here you are doing a mitzvah, so you're basically saying, like, you know, or you're bringing a court on, you're saying, look, all the animals belong to God, so why should God care whether I'm digging my korban or I'm taking Charlie's korban animal and doing it? It's all God's anyway, and I'm just giving it back to God. I know like Charlie cares, but why should God care? Okay, and this is no, God does care. When you go ahead and you, even if you're bringing things to God, you know, it, it can't come through a, you know, through a, uh, through, through some type of a violation. God doesn't want to be condoning that violation. And that's important because when the Ushami has a very fascinating line when it deals with the idea of Mitzvah of the Avera. It says, it says you could frame it two ways. You could say, ain't a vera mitzvah. A sin cannot become a mitzvah. You cannot go ahead and do a sin and then think it's going to count for a mitzvah. God does not, you know, want to condone this and allow it or whatever. But then the Gemara says, but you could say the opposite. You could say, ain't mitzvah be avera. If I'm doing a mitzvah, it can't get qualified as an avera. And we sometimes say that. We sometimes say, and I hear like say, say. If I have to put, you know, uh, you know, a string of a blue string in my seat and it has to be wool and I'm wearing a linen garment, I go, it's not a problem that it's shotness. Because an essay is so to say, the mitzvah doesn't become an avera. The mitzvah overrides concerns of an avera. So that, there's a logic to say, hey, if you're doing a mitzvah, it should override those types of concerns. Okay? Now, and therefore, this is saying no. Like, again, exactly when do we say mitzvah of the avera? Fine. There's a very, there are limited cases that define that. But the general rule is, just because you're doing a mitzvah doesn't condone an avera. Just because you're giving it back to God doesn't mean that you can do something that is illegal, immoral, a sin in that context. So here are the two, the two sources of mitzvah of the avera. Now, it's important to just say very briefly some questions about what its parameters are. It's interesting to note that both of these sources are about a korban. But the Gemara somehow assumes you can immediately apply it to the question of the lulav. So we shouldn't say, fine, it's about a korban, but it's a general point about doing mitzvot, and it's not, we don't say mitzvah ba'aviyaveira. The problem is that there are some gemarot that don't seem to know about the idea of mitzvah ba'aviyaveira. Like a gemara that speaks about a stolen sukkah that raises the issue of ownership, but it never raises the issue of mitzvah ba'aviyaveira. Or a gemara that talks about eating matzah that's tevel, that you're doing an aveira when you eat the matzah, and it never talks about mitzvah ba'aviyaveira. So what do you do about the fact that some gemaras are not aware of this concept? So, so, some, so one minute. So, so is this lulav korban? So some rishonim say, you know what? You're right. Mitzvah bavera outside of korban is only rabbinic, and those are the gemarot are talking at a biblical level. And the whole idea of mitzvah bavera maybe outside of the korban example is only rabbinic. Ramban says something different, which is quite important in terms of thinking about the nature of lulav. When we were talking about sukkah, we were talking about sukkah very much you know, in terms of the Anane Kavod and all that whole sort of the strength of that metaphor. Well, the, um, what, do you do with, what do you do with a lulav? With a lulav, you shake it. And when do you do it? Like during Kalel. And what's this whole idea of shaking and during Kalel and during Davening? And a very powerful sort of idea behind lulav, it's a sort of a vehicle of tefillah. It's a form of tefillah. You use it in the acts of tefillah, particularly relating to water and praying for water. So the Rambam says is, Mitzvah Babiyaveira, is only a problem in something like a korban, meaning, and therefore, biblically, it applies to a lulav because you're coming to use it as a way of finding favor with God. Ba'liratzot, Hayirt says, says the verse, right? If you bring a piseach, you know, and hagazul, will it be desirous? So if you're coming to sort of, you know, to appeal to God and to connect to God directly, not just to do a mitzvah like eating matzah, 
sitting in a sukkah. Again, now a sukkah is on the other side of the equation. Then maybe it's not so problematic. But where it's deeply problematic is you're trying to hear basically say, God, answer us. You know, God, I'm trying to connect with you. And you're involving it with an Avera. That actually is where it becomes particularly a problem. So there's an interesting question of going from Korban to other things. And is Mitzvah Bav Yavera a global principle or not? One other comment about Mitzvah Bav Yavera. I don't want to get into all the discussion of the Rishonim, but I want to say the other very very fundamental conceptual idea about it is what does does it invalidate the act or does it invalidate the object and here's what I mean by that the first statement of Shemba Yochai is it's similar to a lame um, animal that seems to focus on a stigma on the object an invalidity on the object you can't use this object as a mitzvah object so if I would have a mitzvah that would not be about the object being problematic I would be doing an Avera when I'm doing a mitzvah but it's not about the object of the mitzvah then that might be okay and I mean, not okay to do it but that might not invalidate the mitzvah so for example the question is let's say you stole a shofar are you yotze or not and you blow it so the Rambam quoting Yerushalmi says you're yotze why? because he says you're not, you're not doing the mitzvah technically with the shofar you're doing the mitzvah with the sound and the sound isn't stolen. Only the shofar is stolen. Sounds like a very creative argument. But the point is, is that the idea is that it invalidates the object. And therefore, sometimes, if it's not focused on what we define as the exact object of the mitzvah, you would still be yotzeh. That's one way of thinking it. It stigmatizes the object that it was stolen. The first three words of the, of the Mishnah. It doesn't say he's not Yotze is here. He says that the Lulu is Patsul. Exactly. It's excellent. And exactly. The, the Mishnah says, Yilulu Pagazu Vyayavik Patsul. The Lulu is invalid. And the Rambam, when he talks about Mitzvah Vyayavik, he lists Gazul with all these things. And he says, if, if it's invalid for any one of these blemishes, basically, is the way the Rambam says. You know, he sort of categorizes it with issues of like blemishes on the, on the object. So that's one way, probably, you know, a very straightforward way and very consistent. The other way that talks more about God setting an example does not seem to focus on the object. It seems to focus on the action. What are you doing? You're stealing. I can't condone that and so on. And that would say, no, no, no. The problem is when the action of the mitzvah is intertwined with the affairah. But the, que- but the issue still becomes how do you define intertwined? Right? Because there are cases with, let's say I'm shaking the lulav here and eating a ham sandwich here. That's not a mitzvah of Babi Avera. Right? What does it mean to be connected to and intertwined with? Healing is a great example. I wouldn't have the lulav if I hadn't stolen it. So that really makes it intertwined with the sin. It's enabled me to be doing the sin. There are other cases where it's not so intertwined and that might be considered, okay, you're doing a sin and doing a mitzvah, but it's not ba'ah, it's not coming through it. So again, two separate ways of, ways the question of scope, does it apply biblically by all mitzvot or just by korban or just by korban and lulav and things like that? And number two, what's its exact nature? Is it about invalidating the object? So we have to ask the question about which object is the mitzvah object and whether this object has a label or doesn't have a label. And number, uh, let me give you, by the way, another interesting example of that. Let's say I carried my lulav on Shabbos, and I put it, and then and then I ca- and then I came to show I shook it. Well, I did an avera, and in a way, bringing it was part of me at least shaking it in shul. In some way, it enabled or whatever. But if you carry an object, does it become labeled? Does the object now get stigmatized? Right, a stolen object is labeled with its identity as, you know, as its problematic nature becomes part of its identity. The fact that I carry the lulav, it's like, that's my problem. That's not the lulav problem. It doesn't change the identity of the lulav. So that's one question, is we have to identify the object and we have to ask, is the thing that was done, does it stigmatize the object or not? Whereas the other approach says, it's not about the object. It's about the, myth, the act you did is enabling. You're sinning, you're doing a mitzvah through sinning. Not through a sinned object, but through sinning. And then the question we have to ask is, what does through mean? How much do they have to be related to somehow invalidate the performance of the mitzvah? Okay, so that's a very quick shear on mitzvah of Avera, and it very nicely links to the two sources in the Gemara. Let's continue now in the Gemara. It sounds like this. Itmar, let's talk. Itmar nami, amar abiyami, yavesh pasul miknesh ein hadar. So it says that a dried up lulav is invalid because it is not hadar, that we know. And stones invalid because of mitzvah babiyavera. So you see that there is this concept, and presumably that concept explains why it's invalid for all seven days. 
who pleaded Reb Yitzchak, and this argues on Reb Yitzchak. Because now we have a statement in Shmuel, the invalidity of stolen is only on the first day of Yontif. On the other days of Yontif, because you could use a borrowed object, because there is no requirement of ownership, stolen is not a problem. The only issue with stolen is that you don't own it. There is no concept of mitzvah babiyavera, and therefore, Stolen is kosher on the other days of Cholamoi, just the same way a borrowed is. So Masiv Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak asked on that. Lulav Agazav Yavish Pasul. So it says stolen and dried up is invalid. Now before we try to underscore the same way dried up is all seven days, stolen is all seven days. So maybe you could say, okay, no, not necessarily. But I have, but still I'm going to try to prove my case from the language of the Mishnah. Because it says stolen is invalid. So the implication is, Stolen is invalid. Hashol kosher. Borrowed is permissible. So Amos, when would that be? That borrowed is permissible. If it's on the first day, we know you can't use a borrowed lulav and on the first day. It's not yours. It must be we're talking on the second day of Yantav, meaning on Cholamoi. That would be the only case when Shol would be okay. That's why the Mishnah doesn't mention Shaul and it still mentions Gazul. So you see that guzzle is invalid even when you can use a borrowed um, a borrowed lulav. That seems a very strong argument. So Amar Rava, the, the gears has changed to, La'ola B'yom Tavrisha. No, we're going to still say our mission is limited to the first day Yantav. Lomi Bayakamar. It goes without saying. Meaning, why doesn't it say therefore Shaul is invalid? Yeah, that's more obvious than guzzle. Really? Borrowed is a more obvious invalidity than stolen? Yeah. Lomi by Shaul goes without saying that borrowed is invalid. The Lavdideu, because you have no ownership over it. Avogazo, when you steal it, Ema Stam Dami. Maybe I'll say, like we were suggesting before, that with stealing comes, especially you have to understand that Gazu means sort of like um, robbery, meaning that it's, um, that it's, it's in, you steal it directly from the owner. It's not burglary. So the owner knows it's stolen. So immediately with robbery comes a, uh, a Yeyush, the owner giving up, and therefore maybe by Gazu you really do own it. And that's why I might think it's kosher. Kamash Malon, that it's invalid, that it's not kosher. Why not? Maybe because of Mitzvah Babi Avera, maybe it's only the first day, but more likely he's saying because you don't own it after Yeyush. Okay, so here's an approach that rejects Mitzvah Babi Avera, certainly rejects it on the other days. On the other days, you can use borrowed, no problem. You could use stolen, no problem. The only issue is the first day. The mission is only talking about the first day. It could have said that borrowed was invalid as well, but it says Gaza to tell you even, even though you stole it, and now you might think you own it. Nevertheless, you don't own it, or nevertheless, maybe there's still some mitzvah up there, but whatever it is, it's only limited to the first day when borrowed is invalid as well. It's not an issue on the rest of the day. So here seems to be a very deep debate whether we believe in this principle of Mitzvah Babi Avera. Again, you could try to limit the debate and say, no, 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 we all believe in the principle on the first day. We're debating whether you say the principle on Chol okay? But it sounds like there's a deeper debate of whether you actually believe in the principle of Mitzvah Babi Avera and whether Guzzle is a problem because of that or is Guzzle a problem because you just don't own it. And I should, by the way, add, I'm not overloading all of you with all this information, but if we say that guzzle only means on the first day, then it could also be that the word yavesh also means only on the first day. And this gets back to the issue I told you where Chachmei Svarad basically want to limit all the invalidities to the first day. And now that's what's being done right here. You notice how that's being done right right here, that he's saying the mission is talking about guzzle, and guzzle is only, and it's only talking, okay, the mission is talking, guzzle is only talking about the first day. So if the Mishnah is only talking about the first day, that might be true about all of the Mishnah. Okay? And that becomes an important halakhi question. There's Yerushalmi that says that. Yerushalmi says all of the Psulim were only said by Yom HaRishon on the first day. And it's worth noting that that very much fits into the statement right now about Shmuel that limits the case of Guzzle to the first day. The Lama Bayakamar is rejected in Kamashvalon, right? Right. Right. Kamashvalon, that Guzzle is invalid. Right. It's invalid. Invalid. You can't make the silhouette between the shower and the Guzzle. Right. So we have two important issues here. One is, is there principle of Mitzvah Babi Avera at all? Seems to be being debated. And we had a whole discussion what Mitzvah Babi Avera meant. 
And number two is whether Gozel, or relatedly, whether Gozel is invalid the first day or the other days. And that, though, could mean whether the whole Mishnah is talking about the first day or the other days, whether the other invalidities pl- apply throughout the Chag or just on the first day, an issue I mentioned before. Okay, so now we're going to turn to a very interesting application of these concerns. Amalu Rava, Ravuna, Lahanu Avansi. So two lines on the bottom. Ravuna said to the um, um, uh, merchants, um, the foul, to, to, to those merchants, um, so let's take a look. This way, Rashi interprets the word avankari. Um, when you are going to buy hadas, hadasim from the non-Jews, don't you be the ones to cut the hadasim off the tree? Let them be the ones to cut the hadasim off the tree. The and then give it to you. So you are going around. You're buying hadasim for the Jewish community, um, and the people that own the hadasim are these are these, are these non-Jews that have all of these fields with hadas trees in them. So have them be the ones to cut it off the tree, not you. Why? My time. What's the reason? So that's obviously a very troubling statement, but it was probably reflecting a reality um, at that time and place that the non-Jews are assumed to be on land that is not technically theirs, okay? They own it. doesn't necessarily mean they stick people up at gunpoint, but maybe it means that they take possession of it. Maybe the government took possession of it, and the, and, um, you know, and the halacha doesn't recognize the basis on which the government takes possession of it, you know, to be legitimate, or, to be legitimate and therefore it's considered geza. By the way, the Aruch says that the word avankari doesn't just mean merchants. It means sort of like, uh, off, you know, officers of the king. So it is connected to some degree to governmental issues. Anyway, so we have to assume in this context that the land that they're on is not theirs. So it's Geza. All right? So now we're going to have a problem. You're going to buy Hadas from them, and therefore you're going to be Yotze, the mitzvah of, of, of Lulav, with a stolen Hadas. Where did Rav Huna live? In Babel. Okay? So, um, so it's going, you're going to be doing the mitzvah with a stolen Hadas. So here's how you're going to get out of it. Because part of the issue also has to do with the fact of that we start with the idea of land. So let's keep on reading. The karka ain't an exelus. Land cannot be stolen. Okay, now that's, of course, you've got to love sort of the thing. You know, we assume all the land is stolen and land can't be stolen. So what does it mean land can't be stolen? It means halakhically, its status doesn't change. The status of the land, you still sin if you see somebody else's property. But of course, you can't put somebody's land in your back pocket and take it away. It's always there. So in a way, you know, you're forcing the owner off, but you're not like taking it physically away from the owner. And therefore, halakhically, the land never gets a an identity as being stolen. You stole, but the land, that identity never applies to the land. So, for example, when the Gemara thinks that you could, let's say, be Kona something with Yeush, right, if I stole a Lulav and there's Yeush, I take possession, that would not apply to land. I basically seized your land, you gave up hope of ever getting it back, it doesn't become my land. It's still always there and it's always your land. Okay? So now, these lands are being, are seized by people that are not their owners, and they have hadas trees, but the hadas trees are connected to the ground, so there's yet no status change in the land and in the hadas trees. Okay? Now let's just see what happens once those hadasim are cut down and then they become chattel and not land. Okay? Hilkah. We exose the inahu, let them cut it down. Now what hap- what's going to happen? They're going to cut it down, and then the fact that the owners have, look, this land has been stolen for the last decade. The owners have long given up hope of ever getting it back. The only point is, as I said, their giving up hope, their yeush, has not changed the status of the land, because it's it's always there. So when when will it be meaningful? When you cut down the hadasim, now these hadasim are stolen as well. Right? They're just no longer land. Now they're stolen Hadassim that isn't land. Now the Yeish of the owners from 10 years ago kicks in. Now this thing which can be defined as stolen is both stolen and stolen with the owners giving up a hope. And that means that I can take possession of it. Right? After, I mean, after Yeish and it's chattel and it's stolen, now it now can be possessed. So therefore, what will happen? If the non-Jews are the ones that cut it down, then who is the first one who winds up owning these Hadassim? 
the non-Jews. Now, now, now you buy it from the non-Jews. When you're buying it, it's not considered a problem of mitzvah habaviyavera. If you cut it down and then you took possession of it as, you know, in the initial act of being like taking it when it was stolen and then becoming yours, but it went from being stolen to being yours. That's what the Gemara said before. Even after Yehush, even after you take possession of it, right, it remains invalid, right? That was the whole point about the Korban. Even if you own it, you stole it, even now that you own it, it remains invalid. But here... You're not, you won't have, you know, it's like you're going to let somebody else be your shill. You know, you're going to keep your hands clean. They're going to get their hands dirty. So for them, it was, it had the identity of being stolen and then they owned something that was stolen. By the time you come around, you're buying something that is owned by them. So what do I care about its past history? It's right now owned by the person on the land and therefore I can buy it and I don't have to relate to this object as a stolen object. I don't have to care about its past history. The past history is completely unrelated to me because when I encountered it, it was already owned by the, by the owners of the land. One minute. Let's just finish reading that. So the filing will take effect when they're holding on to it. And when it comes into you, your hands, okay, then it'll change possession and then you'll be safe, you'll be protected. So the Gemara says, wait a minute, I don't understand why it's a problem. So what, for, for having these merchants cut it down. So, so, he gazu avankari, when the merchants cut it, let the merchants be the one to cut down, it down. They have a yeish filing be daihu, so fine, when will the yeish kick in? It'll kick in in the hands of the merchants. But nevertheless, the merchants are selling it to somebody else. The We'll buy it from the merchants and we're safe. Because the Yehush already took effect in the hands of the merchants. So let the merchants cut it. What do I care? I'm buying it from the merchants. So I'll get it. It'll still be safe. So the Gemara says, look, No, because the merchants themselves want to use the Hadassim for their own Lulav. Okay? So for the merchants, you're right. If the merchant cut it down and then sold it to you, by the time it got into your hands, it's past history like, you know, it's like record would have been expunged. Because, you know, for you, but not for the merchant. The merchant still encountered it as a stolen object. So if the merchants want to use it for themselves, they have to let the non-Jews cut it down, get somebody else to do that dirty work, and then they can encounter it after its slate has already been cleaned, after that is just ancient history. Yes, Charlie. This would have, principle should apply everywhere in the world, not just here at Israel. Yeah. It's a stolen land. Yeah. So I cannot have a willow tree or a myrtle bush in my yard because my land was clearly stolen from the Indians. No, so that gets to issues about Dina the Mahusadina and the idea that the government, that, that also there's a particular concept of Kivush Muhammad, that lands conquered in war, you know, are, although you could say, was it really a war? You know, was it going back on a treaty and this and that? Mm-hmm. Anyway, but there are things that sort of recognize governmental actions. You know, it is true. Sometimes the Gemara questions whether the governmental actions are legitimate and therefore is it considered gazul or not. But once mm-hmm. you introduce the principle of Dina Mahusadina, you know, that tends to sort of recognize legitim- generally the legitimacy of governmental actions for halakhic mm-hmm. purposes as well. Okay? So that's how this Gemara... So what's fascinating about this Gemara, besides the idea of karka, is that it recognizes that it's not always mitzvah babi avera. It's label and identity does not have to be permanent. Right? The Gemara before says they saying, you stole it. Then even after you own it, it remains invalid. But for somebody else, that might be ancient history. Now, I actually simplified it a little bit because what I actually sort of described the scenario was, right, here's the merchant. Here's the Hadass tree. I don't know. Anyway, he has the Hadass. So this is, Yeish kicks in here. And I said basically, whoops, Yeish kicked in. When he, when, well, whatever, whoever, whoever bought it, the merchant, or whoever cut it down, Yehosh kicked in, and then going on the previous Gemara, now he owns it. Now it's his. And here you come along, here we'll make you with the kippah, okay? Here you come along, and you're buying something from him that he already owns. Okay, and therefore you're totally clean. For you it's not guzzle, he already owns it. Okay, and that's what the Gemara says. Yeah, but the Gemara says, notice the language of the Gemara is Yehosh plus Shinoi Rishus. That might suggest, because a normal... Remember I told you before, there's a question whether Yehush itself makes you own it. The normal assumption is Yehush itself doesn't make you own it. If I'm the Gazan and I steal it, even after Yehush, I never own it. But then if I hand it off to you, then you, who are getting it after Yehush, you do own it. That's Yehush plus Shini Rishos. In that scenario, even after Yehush, he doesn't own it. 
if there's Yerush, it's still not his. It's still Gozel. There's Yerush and it's Gozel. And then he transfers it to him. Then you have Yerush plus Shini Rishuk. And now, at that act of transfer, here's where this guy now owns it. Now, that's, that is why am I making that point? Because that's a bigger Kiddush in terms of the Mitzvah of Babi Avera. That even though he encountered it, it was still Gozel, right? You see, I encountered it, it was still Gozel. Since at that very act of taking it, it became his in that moment, that makes it okay to use. That is a bigger Kiddush than saying, after he owns it, you can buy it from him. Here you can buy it while it's stolen, and in that act of taking it, though, it fully becomes yours. Okay, so that is definitely a Kiddush here, and I want to point out, by the way, that you will notice that this Gemara is not, does not mention the words Mitzvah Babi Avela. And there are some Rishonim that understand that we're talking, you know, we already introduced the possibility that maybe Mitzvah Babi Avela, we don't, don't, don't believe in the concept. So maybe this whole Gemara is not about Mitzvah Babi Avela, maybe it's just about the need to own it. The need for ownership. It's that simple. Forget Mitzvah Babi Avera. It's all about ownership. So if you had a problem with Mitzvah Babi Avera, you would want him to own it fully and get it to work before you encountered it. But if you don't have a problem with Mitzvah Babi Avera, you can buy it even while it's still stolen. Okay, it's stolen and I bought it. Fine. But if it's not Mitzvah Babi Avera, I only care about one question. Do I own it? And then, yes, even though when you bought it, it was stolen, since you're going to own it in the end, you can use it for the mitzvah. So there's that big question, is, is the Gemara here trying to address the issue of ownership? Or is it trying to, and that's sufficient? Once you own it, we're happy? Or is it also trying to address the issue of mitzvah of So I can rest assured that the guy selling watches in 42nd Street, those watches are stolen, <laughs> and I can buy one of those watches, and I don't have to worry. Um, I'm not going to answer that. We'll talk about it when we get to Baba Kama. It's an, it's an applicable yes, yes. to the concept. Yes, yes, that is correct. Yes. Right. So, okay, this gets to the question about the legality of engaging in it and providing a market for the Ghana and the Goslin and becoming sort of caught up in that sin. Meaning, there's one question of do you own it after the fact? There's another question, and maybe the answer is yes. There was Yeyush and Shina Rishus and whatever. The other question is are you allowed to do it? And there is explicit discussions in Babakamo about whether you are allowed to buy things that you, should, that you can reasonably assume are stolen. Um, and, you know, the basic answer is no, and there's a reasonable assumption that they're stolen, you cannot be buying it. So the question, therefore, can be, so, like, how can, therefore, you be buying these hadassim, you know, from this case of the carpet and so on? But, again, it might be talking about a very different type of a reality. It's one thing that your buying of it provides a market for the goods, and then you become complicit in the sin. It's another thing here. The people are not stealing the land, whatever the story about that is. They're not selling, stealing the land in order so that they can make a fortune selling hadassim on sukkahs. You know, so it's really... so. But there are issues, definitely, with buying stolen goods and providing a market. Um, that's being bracketed here, okay? But it is important to raise the issue. Okay. So now the Gemara says like this. So in order for the merchants... To take, possession, uh, to take possession of it, they need the owners to cut it down. And then, for themselves, again, for their own Lulav and Esrog, they can use it, because then it'll, they'll take possession with Yeyush plus the Shinu Rishos plus the switching of the hands. So the Gemara says, okay, why do you have to worry about, you know, Yeyush and Shinu Rishos and transferring ownership? Let them cut it down, and they'll own it. Why will they own it? I mean, Yeyush itself doesn't do it. It has to change hands. No. They'll own it because they made a physical change in the object. Now, what is the physical change they made in the object? They cut it down. Interestingly, the Gemara does not seem to care, be focusing on that. The Gemara assumes the physical change in the object is they're going to take the Hadas and bind it into the Lulav. And that's the change. So the Gemara says, no, Kasavar, Lulav ain't Sarcheget. The you know, lulav doesn't have to be bound up, and therefore, even if you did bind it up, it doesn't create a new identity to the object. It's, it's tied with other things, but it's not a halachically new identity, and it's meaningless. And even if it did require an egged, and now it has a new identity, it's like you changed it and made it part of a lulav bunch, nevertheless, it's going to be a change that is going to revert back to form. After Sukkot, it's going to lose that special identity, and it will just become a simple hadas. And something that reverts back to form is not considered a real change. So, of course, this Gemara is wild because it assumes that cutting it down is not a significant change. 
you know okay it's a growing hadas or not a growing hadas I mean but you know maybe it's not so crazy like let's say we were talking not about a hadas which is a branch and it does seem like more of a change let's say we're talking about an apple okay and I told you this principle that when you make a shinoi in an object the idea here is how does a goslin can take possession ownership not that it's legal but take ownership of the object he stole one way is the concept of yeish yeish and shinoishos that's about creating a a a divorcing the object from the owner because he's given up hope it's out of his control now maybe even a, another party has taken possession of it after the Yeosh that creates that distancing and that's how it works but another way of Gazan takes possession is when he changes the object then it becomes not like not the original thing that was stolen and therefore that also makes it something that is no longer considered to be the owner he has to pay back the owner don't get me wrong and none of this is permissible but with that shinoi it somehow changes the identity of the object not the distancing but the identity so let's say so we're all saying well so I don't understand isn't that physical change cutting is a big physical change but let's say we're talking about an apple okay and let's say I said you plucked an apple off of a tree. You stole somebody's land that had an apple tree and you plucked an apple. Should that be considered to be that you've changed it now and it's a shinui matzah and you, and you don't have to return the object? So you say, no, you know, okay, it was growing and now you plucked it, but still the same apple, it's just no longer attached. Now we do feel a little bit differently about a branch, which is like central, to, which is like part of the tree and something growing off of the tree that will fall off on its own. But that seems to be the Gemara's understanding. Cutting down the hadassim doesn't really change the hadassim. Them, but maybe what changes is they became part of the lulav and then eh, that, that's not a change in any way that's going to revert back to form so you can't own it that way you still need this idea of yeus and shinu rishos so you need them to cut it and then you buy it so by the time you buy it now it has transferred ownership and now you're okay I steal your car and I stole it yeah. and I chop it into different pieces I own the pieces <laughs> yes exactly you bring it to a chop shop, you own the pieces right. so the pieces the fender is now mine exactly I got paid for your car exactly but it doesn't exist exactly Okay, so let's just read one more line of the Gemara. So the Gemara says, Hashem." <laughs> okay, but what about a change in name? Now, what change in name occurs to this? So, Before it was a myrtle. Before Sukkot came along, it was a myrtle branch. Comes along Sukkot, and it's no longer a myrtle branch. It's a Hadas. Okay, so it's the, the fact that it's being used for a mitzvah gives it a new identity. So in the Gemara's language, the Ahadasa was Hadas. That was just the, you know, uh, the normal botanical name for this thing. But when it's a mitzvah object, its name is now Hoshana. So doesn't that now change its identity and mean you should own it even without changing hands? So it just be the one answer of the Gemara. The Gemara's answer is, you know what? They were calling it a Hadas. They were calling it a Hoshani even before Sukkot. Right? Especially, right, once it gets to be like Tishrei, you're looking around and you're seeing what, 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 a, week, what a month ago you would, have called, well, you would have called a willow, now you're calling it a Rava. And what a month ago you would have called a myrtle, now you're calling it a Hadas. So therefore, it is actually, the name existed even before it was cut down, and therefore the only way to own it is have the Yehosh kick in when they, when they cut it down, and then you buy it, and then it's Yehosh and Shin Rishus, and now you own it, and that will allow you to use it. Okay.